Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. This podcast is sponsored by Four Data, a Canberra-based company that is committed to ensuring business owners have reliable and professional IT services. I'm a client of Four Data. I use their website hosting services, and I'm also reducing my email spam with their secure email hosting service. As a special offer to the Joyful Frugalista podcast listeners, 4Data will provide, wherever you are, website hosting at $12 a month and up to two hours initial free migration service, valued at $300. Find them online at number 4data.com.au. 4Data, they fix IT. Hello Frugalistas and welcome. Today I have a very special guest, someone who I really enjoy chatting with so much. It's going to be actually hard to stick to the sort of random 30 minute schedule that I have set for each podcast and welcome Bushy. Welcome Bushy Martin. Yeah, great to see you Serena. I love you. I yeah, Once you and I get talking, yeah, <laughs> the time passes very quickly, which is pretty rare. So uh, you put a bit of pressure on me to try and keep it at 30 minutes today. I'll, I'll do my best. Well, luckily, my husband, Neil, the sound producer, is sitting here and he'll give me cues and that will help. But I suspect I'm going to have to invite you back. And this is before we've even started, but this explains how excited I am to have you on. So for those of you who don't know Bushy, he does a number of things, but mainly he's a property guru. Is that a fair description? Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. (laughs) I'm a... An investor all around, so I, I get put in the property box. So I'm a big believer in shares and property and other things, but property is where we've grown the biggest part of our portfolio. So, and then it's probably the area that I've got the greatest knowledge. So we're going to have a great discussion today about property. In addition to being a property guru, Bushy is a keynote speaker. He's an author. And in 2017, he was named as one of the top 10 property specialists in Australia by the Property Investor magazine which is huge because that is a major publication. Yeah, I was a real surprise, actually. Serena, I was, I was very humbled to achieve that result. But I, I, I'm just, I guess I'm, I'm in a blessed position now where I have the time and opportunity as a result of investing in property and shares and other things to give time back to others and to wake up hardworking Australians to the need to get invested in something and I guess the exposure that came through those things resulted in that exercise. So, yeah, I'm very fortunate. Well, well done. And that um, that's not the only thing you have won. I understand that you are author of The Freedom Formula and also a follow-up book, Get Invested, and then in Get Invested won an award, in fact, two awards, in fact. Yeah, won the, uh, the Best Personal Investment and Finance book at uh, last year's Australian Business Book Award. So, uh, again, very humble with, with that result. But I... I guess the, I'm not a big big person on awards, but what awards do give you is a little bit more exposure and, and therefore a, a better opportunity to be talking to other hardworking Aussies on, on what they need to be doing to protect and secure their own lifestyle long term. Well, your writing is very readable and I really enjoy it. And I even read the back to front introduction to the Freedom Formula. Cursing as I did it, and at the end, she basically said, well, most people wouldn't make the effort to do this. No, exactly. That was a, that's a de- very deliberate test. For those watching or listening today, yeah, I have written the first page, back to front, top to bottom. 
And uh, the, the real message there is that investing in anything is like learning how to walk or learning how to talk. And if you don't put in the time and the energy and you just, just jump straight to the solution, you're likely to get yourself into a lot of strife. Yeah. So uh, and it's interesting, those that, you know, the next paragraph on the page after basically says, if, if you haven't bothered to read it backwards, then that's a fair indication of how well you're going to go in investing because you're <laughs> looking for shortcuts and you'll probably shortcut yourself in the process. Now, it was interesting because I also speak and read Chinese, Mandarin Chinese, not so much these days, but it, that was, you know, my background, particularly when I served as a diplomat. And traditional Chinese is always written from right to left anyway. Not so much modern Chinese in mainland China, but in Taiwan, a lot of the publications are still right to left. And it's confusing awesome. sometimes because you, you're often not sure whether it's going to be left to right or right to left, but you get used to it after a while. And it's about training cool. the, the brain to think in a different way, I think. Totally, totally. I, I think that's the, the saddest thing for a lot of Australians, uh, Serena, is that uh, a lot of us stop learning when we leave school. And, mm. and for you and I, uh, learning is the thing that, that adds interest to my life. So if, if I haven't learned something every day, there's something wrong for me. And uh, I think the biggest opportunity a lot of Australians have had is to say, well, uh, the world is a, a new place if, we, if we're willing to go out there and use our curiosity to learn from it. And it create, that in itself creates a lot of creativity, which creates a lot of positivity. So I'm um, uh, a big fan of, of learning. And, and I love the fact that you've learned Chinese. That's a difficult language to, to try and learn. I'd I've got I've got French on the palette for this year. One of my personal goals this year is to start learning French. So we'll see how we go. <laughs> well, coincidentally, I'd been teaching myself a bit of French through Duolingo, which is a, a free app, and quite enjoying it. So one of my son's best friends is French, so it's a good good opportunity seeing we have French friends. So I look forward to being able to speak some Francais with you in the future. And I'm at a very 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 early stage. But on to other things that you are doing. In addition to all of this, I understand you have a very interesting new anchoring opportunity that's open for you. Yeah, it's actually come out of the podcast, Serena. Um, I've just been very fortunate to score the anchor role on the Real Estate Talk Show, which is Australia's most popular property show. It has a regular listening audience of about 120,000 people a week. The host of that's been doing it for over 12 years and now he wants to sort of step back and do more production and he's looking for someone to, to grab the chair. So just an awesome opportunity for me to, and an excuse to be rubbing shoulders with all of the, the gurus in the property space because, again, every person I talk to, I learn something from. Mm. Again, just another another outlet really to wake up hardworking Australians to the opportunity that's, that's staring at all of us and... For those who don't take that opportunity and think beyond super and paying off the home loan, then uh, life's going to get pretty grim down the track. Yeah, thank you for raising that. And you've mentioned hardworking Australians a few times, and I think this is a really important point. This is a discussion actually I've been having with a few girlfriends actually over recent days, the fact that often we were educated to believe that you would invest in your career and somehow your career and your work is going to take care of you that the solution to every problem is just waiting for that next promotion. Yeah, and, and I, hey, I've been there. Don't worry, I think most of us have brought up that way. And I, I spent the first nearly 20 years of my own working career doing exactly that. I was an architect. I was going flat out. It was all about the career. I only focused on income. And I hit the wall, lost everything. Working seven days a week, week 12 hours a day, didn't put any energy into anything else, lost my marriage and ended up burnt out 
broken and broke, basically, in my early 30s. And uh, I, I just think somehow we need to, you know, it probably starts with the schools. We need to re-educate people not to focus just on career and income, but in parallel with that, we need to be investing in ourselves mm. beyond that. So uh, there's, a, there's a big hole there, I think, in terms of, of our expectation of, of what career is going to do, do for us. And I often say that people put, have this expectation that their career is going to do everything for them. So they put everything into that. And then uh, if that gets rocked for any reason, then it's a very, very thin layer. And, and I think that, you know, what we've just been living through with COVID is a massive yeah. wake-up call for Australians who just focused on their jobs and just focused on their income because, you know, I've always said the difference between uh, most Australians, I believe, are rich. And what I mean by that is that uh, a lot of Australians enjoy pretty good incomes. It might mean putting in big hours to get it, but pretty good incomes. That's true. But very, very few of us are wealthy. And, and wealthy, for me, the definition for wealthy is having time on your hands. So the, the really easy litmus test for that one is if if you turned off your work income today, how long could you sustain your existing lifestyle for? And unfortunately, for most Aussies, it's days, weeks, maybe months. Very few I talk to are years. And we've, we've had an opportunity now to recognise through the contagion that if we're not investing in other things that are going to protect and grow alternative forms of income, then we run the risk of being the victim of a similar circumstance when mm. it occurs in the future, and I'm sure it will, unfortunately. Well, we're living in very unprecedented and disruptive times. They've been talking about the future of work and the need for you know, more digitised options, but I think COVID has accelerated that process of what was already happening, and there's probably even more disruption to come. I think uh, disruption is part of our way of life now. And those who embrace disruption, I, I've always said, Serena, that, that change creates the greatest opportunity for those who are bright enough to recognise it. And for those that, that embrace change, because w- with change comes opportunity, then those that do that are going to be very well, very well placed. Those who hang on to the past and hang on to what used to be are in for a, a big shock, and and we've just seen that. We've we've seen a lot of people that, uh, you know, in the retail, travel, and, and other sectors that have been decimated by the contagion. Uh, those those things will continue to happen. So we need to be creative. We we need to be able to adapt. I think one of the biggest core skills that we all need moving forward is to be able to adapt to the continuous change that we, that life will be as we move forward. Well, this is a good segue into talking about property and change and how it's changed because I guess traditionally our view of property has been, you know, bricks and mortar, very conservative, very staid, not much you can do with it. But this year has been crazy in terms of what's happened with property. And we were talking before that this time last year, a lot of younger people that I knew were like, oh, I'll never afford to get into property, almost quite upset about property investors who were taking away the property from them. quite a negative rhetoric around property, but one year on, everything has changed so much. Yeah, I think there's a number of reasons for that. One, the wake-up call that we've just spoken about, and and I think a recognition that leaving your money in the bank is going backwards pretty quickly because the sort of interest rates you get on your money now, when you compare that with inflation, you're you're going backwards every day you leave your money in the bank. But that wake-up call of recognising that there is a need to invest in things outside of your career 
has forced people to start lifting their sights. And that's that's across the board. It's not just young people either, by the way. You know, we've, we've seen across the board a movement towards investing in other things, which, which I think is very positive. But it's a great window of opportunity. I mean, the, the property market, uh, very rare that we see the property planets align and they are coming into alignment. Uh, the, the property opportunity over the next two or three years is going to be pretty substantial. We only see it once every sort of 20-odd years. Last time was in the early 2000s when we saw uh, property really go through its growth spurt. I think we're likely to see a, a similar exercise moving forward. And there's a lot of incentives now. So with all of the government money flushing around in the system right across the board and people not able to travel or spend it on other things, you know, I heard a figure the other day saying where there's about $70 billion worth of money that would otherwise have been spent on overseas holidays is sitting in people's bank accounts. And with everything that's going around that, uh, we're seeing a, a growth in the interest in property, but also two shares. That There's never been so many first-time online traders as there has been signed up in the last 12 months. It's phenomenal, isn't it? You mentioned the government incentives for property. Perhaps could you explain to some of our listeners who might not be familiar with these what these incentives are? Yeah, well, there's a whole bunch of them at the moment, obviously. So let's talk about a couple of them. And I might focus firstly on first-time buyers because a lot of the incentives are orientated around first-time buyers. Why? There's a simple reason why government is incentivising those over others, and that is that they recognise that first-home buyers, in terms of catering for the housing shortage, and there is a housing shortage, and a big focus of the government is on new build properties because they know if they incentivise mums and dads and and first-timers to get into property that that's actually going to, and build property, that's going to reduce the housing shortage that currently exists across the country. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the government knows that the only way to get out of recession is to spend your way out of recession. And you know, if we compared our current times and the way we've rebounded so quickly compared with similar circumstances back in the 1930s where everyone hid their money under the bed, well, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when you do that. Conversely, if you've got money in your pocket and you start spending it, then what I spend becomes your income and that, that becomes an upward spiral. So the government has uh, added some really good incentives to do that, and they've done that on a number of measures. So there's obviously early access to super, and there's pros and cons with doing that. There's also the uh, super saver scheme where you can put money tax effectively into your super and withdraw up to uh, 30 grand to put towards a deposit on the home. There's the first-home buyer's grants that range from anywhere between 10 to 15 uh, grand across the country. There's a home builder's grant of 25 grand, and then there's a first-home loan deposit scheme, which is a, another exercise where effectively the government is covering the lender's mortgage insurance cost over and above a 80% loan on, on getting a property. So there's very significant incentives there for and good reasons to do it. I, I actually think they are sensible uh, incentives. Uh, it, it is bringing forward demand somewhat, but given the housing shortage that we have and given the fact that you know, the international borders are closed and will be for some time, I think a very smart step by the government to incentivise people to be securing property at various levels. Thank you for all of that. We are really living in some unprecedented times. What kind of advice would you give to first home buyers, people who are looking and buying property the first time, particularly young people, although not necessarily, as we mentioned, or parents of first home buyers? What kind of advice would you 
give to them about how to get into the market and what to look for? Yeah, okay. Well, let's break that down a little bit. Let, let's let's start with the the buyers themselves. The first thing I would say, and I and I, I say this from personal experience, uh, Serena, because it's a fair while ago now. I was in the late nineties. I ended up at round zero. Lost my marriage. Absolutely start again at the age of thirty three. Had didn't have two cents to my name at that stage. I often joke. I unfortunately got out of my first marriage with my old beaten up Toyota car and my cassettes. That was that was all I had to my name. And that, that cassette gives you a fair indication of how long ago that was. And so the, the big advice I would make is to be realistic about your expectations and don't treat your first property as your forever home. Treat it as a stepping stone. That's the key exercise. And the other thing to consider, I think, which is something that we we did before this was even a name. We started doing this. We we became rent vesters. Mm. So we lived close to the city, which is where our work was at the time, in a very humble little two bed townhouse because that's all we could afford. And we stuck our money into property that was uh, well over an hour south of Adelaide in those days. Which and we picked up that property for the the massive sum of eighty four thousand dollars. Would you believe a three bedroom <laughs> home by the beach? Last valuation on that property, by the way, uh, was five hundred and fifteen thousand. So I guess the one of the key messages there is set your expectations. Right, your the place you first buy doesn't have to be the Taj Mahal, and it doesn't have to be the place you live in either. But use your capacity to put in the things that are going to grow in value as the, as the key thing. So separate lifestyle from investment in that in that capacity, but also treat what you're getting into property as an investment. And what I mean by that is the numbers are more important than the property itself and get some help with it. Property is a game of finance. So you get your numbers and get your finance right before you even worry about the property. The property is actually the last thing you look at in that context. That is great advice. I actually bought a number of properties with my ex-husband when we were actually in Taiwan, sight unseen. In fact, one I'm seeing tomorrow for the first time and I've owned it for over six years. Now that seems crazy. Why would you do that? Because we looked at the numbers, we did all of that, put them into a spreadsheet and read the property management report. The property report looked at the condition of the property, was very aware of all of those issues. So what it actually looked like was, wasn't was nearly as relevant in a way because, I mean, I'm not going to live there. <laughs> Spot on. You make a really good point there that, that most people get into property, I think because they live in one, they are, they are automatically a, a, a property expert. And that's the biggest, one of the biggest fallacies that's attached to this whole exercise. Because what goes with that is you start looking for properties that you would live in, not properties that are going to work well as an, as an investment. Mm. They're two very, very different things. And, and the, the big change there is between the emotional attachment that you have to the home you live in versus the, the, the rational uh, numbers focus you need if you're going to treat it as a as an investment exercise. So that, that's really key. One of the other pieces of advice I'd give anyone looking at property is to treat it as an elite team sport. And what I mean by that is, uh, again, I learned this through uh, a lot of hard knocks and I got a lot of blood noses on this because when I started, I didn't trust anyone. And so I made mistakes that I, without even knowing I was making mistakes early on. When I got a bit smarter, I surrounded myself with people a lot brighter than I was in each aspect of the whole arena. And then I just became the orchestra leader. So once I was clear on what symphony I wanted to sing, I just got the best instruments in each each position from accounting through to buyers agents to project managers to builders to 
a mortgage broker is really important up front and early. Mm-hmm. A, a really good property manager is absolutely crucial, not only once you've got the property, but beforehand, because the property manager will know what style of property works best in a particular location. And I'll give you the truth. Exactly. And they'll tell you what the vacancy rates are doing too. They'll tell you whether properties are in demand or not. They'll tell you what the estimated rents are. Very key. They're really key players. Now, the, the analogy I often use, I mean, it's, if you needed life-saving uh, brain surgery, you wouldn't go to Bunnings, grab a scalpel, some cotton wool, some methylated spirits and a drill and have a go at it yourself in front of the mirror in the bathroom at home. I hope not. Yeah. That's exactly what most first-time property investors do. They go out and they just, site without much uh, investment at all, they'll go out and buy a property. And then would you believe that over 50% of first-time investors sell a property within the first five years? And the reason for that is they haven't spent any time on the numbers. They haven't structured it the right way. They haven't organised the finance in the right capacity. They haven't bought the right property in the right location set up the right way. If you get all of those things right by uh, surrounding yourself with experts in each of those fields, then all of a sudden, property can be a really easy journey versus a a nightmare if you do it the other way around. Because it's not something that people do every day, buying and selling property, is it? And I remember when I... Yeah. So I remember when I bought the apartment that I am recording this podcast in, which I'm trying to think now, I think it's about almost four years ago now. I remember buying it in December. Yeah, about December, four years ago. I'd been actually at a kid's party a couple of weeks beforehand where this dad of one of my kid's friends had been talking about the strategy he was planning to use for an auction. And it was actually quite interesting listening to him because I had this impression that it was a very blokey male style thing full of lots of bravado because that was kind of what he thought it was going to be like. He was doing this research and prepping himself for it. And when I actually went to the auction, well, not only did I bid and I won it, at auction. Well, actually, I didn't buy it quite like that. It didn't reach reserve and I was the only bidder. So then I was able to negotiate a price, but I still ended up buying it on on auction terms, but it was exactly what I wanted. So I was happy to do that. What was fascinating was the amount of other women who were bidding at auction and quite confidently, but it isn't something you do every day, is it? And it's quite intimidating. Absolutely. Yeah, no, you're about average once every three and a half years is is, uh, how often that happens. One other thing, and sort of leveraging off what you've just mentioned there, uh, we, we talked about the, in your question, you talked about parents and, and what they should, you know, mums and dads, what should they be doing to help help their children on, on their property journey? I think it's a really important question because the easy road and what the banks would like you to do is to go as guarantor. And mm. guarantor sounds, sounds pretty ineffectual it's like yeah okay i'll just sign this piece of paper and I'm, I'm a guarantor and parents want to help their kids don't they you want to do everything you can to set up your kids and and so that, and i think there's a lot of merit in that i i 100 i often say you know why wait until you die before you help out your kids donate your your driveway to them now to, to help them get into their own home but do that very carefully don't don't do it as a guarantor but they really sit because it, some of the risks associated with, with being a guarantor, and, and the banks don't talk enough about this, are that one, you are, as a guarantor, totally responsible for your kid's debt. So the whole they debt. can't pay their mortgage and, and uh, they can't cover it, you're responsible for it, uh, which means, and they often will use that security against your own home. So you're actually putting your own home at risk by going as a guarantor. There's different types of guarantor, but but that's certainly one of the risks. 
One of the other risks that a lot of people, a lot of parents don't think about buying is that because you've virtually been accepting responsibility for your kid's debt, it also reduces how much additional borrowings you can secure if you want to do something different yourself. So if you want to get another property, whether it be an investment property, rental property, a holiday home, or in fact you want to change your own home to something else, that guarantor position can really tie you up in knots. Mm. Uh, So don't be guarantor. The simple way of helping out your kids is to take out a very small dedicated loan against existing property. So you're just responsible for that portion. That's against your property. It has nothing to do with your kids' portion. You donate that as as a, a, it can be a repayable gift, if you like, uh, to your kids that forms a part of the deposit. And then they take out their own loan against the property based on what they are capable of doing. That keeps them both completely separate. You're still helping your kids out by, by doing that. But you're minimising your exposure and you're minimising your risk in a way that's helping everyone but protecting everyone at the same time. So effectively, you're taking out a smaller loan and giving them access to a smaller amount of money, which gives them the cash they need as they're buying the property, but you're not exposing your own yourself to the full risk should your son or daughter default. It's spot on. Absolutely spot on. Yeah. That's quite smart. I haven't thought about that. Simple. It's a very simple thing. It achieves exactly the same thing, but it, from a risk protection perspective. And it also means, though, that, you know, I'd, I was brought up by my parents that if you wanted it, it my, my good father always used to say, son, you can have anything you want just as soon as you've saved up the money. <laughs> I love that. that was, and it was the best advice he's ever given me because when all my mates at school were getting cars from their parents and I was handling dad and he said, you can have a car as soon as you've saved up the money to buy one, son, so go for broke. Great, really great lessons. So the part of helping Helping your children, I believe, is tough love. I, and I do the same thing with my son now. I use exactly those, those same analogies with my son. So I, I sort of briefly touched on expectations earlier on. Unfortunately, we live in an instant iPhone everything world where the patience and persistence muscles have withered and died on the vine, unfortunately, Serena. And that, that concept of delayed gratification is something that people just don't have to be expose themselves too much in any other aspect of their lives. But if yeah. you're going to be successful investing or property, then you do need to uh, not sacrifice a lot, but you need you do need to put some money away and, and put into things that are going to benefit you long term, not focus on the, the here and now so much. Yeah, delayed gratification is a big one. And this day and age, things are so instant, aren't they? Whether it's going to shop and buy or even e-commerce, I can buy things on Amazon and have them within the next day or the day after. And so you get so accustomed to having it now. Yeah, I'm not sure how we break it either. It's the great conundrum for me. So it's a question I continue to ask to try and get to the bottom of how can we motivate and inspire people to recognise the benefit of delayed gratification and recognising that sustainable success is a long-term journey. That, that, that's the one thing that I have learned over time is that, and I've done a lot of study, you know, I've looked at what we've, we've done and what others have done. Every person who's sustainably successful, and I mean sustainably, which is, you know, ongoing, it's, that's at least a 15-year journey. And the good news about that is once you accept that sustainable success in anything, is going to take 15 years and you embrace that time rather than try and fight that time where everyone's in such a gut-busting hurry to, to do things yesterday. 
if you embrace it and slow down and 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 you can actually enjoy that journey rather than feel like you're up against it all the time. So from a mindset and a headset perspective, embracing that long-term journey and then then doing little things today that are going to give you a much bigger benefit later on is is going to reap big rewards. But but trying to to get that through, and it's not just young ones that are in this position. I see this in, you know, clients at all ages just don't recognise the benefit of delayed gratification. It is huge. And as you know, there's been studies done on this famously, the marshmallow study. And I can't remember who did it. I'm sure you're aware of this too. Yeah, Harvard study many years ago. Yeah, dead right. Yeah, where children were put in a room with two marshmallows or one marshmallow and told if you wait, you will get two marshmallows. And it was very interesting to observe. Some children would just gobble down that marshmallow straight away. Others would find techniques to distract themselves, knowing that if they waited, was it half an hour or an hour? It wasn't that long. It wasn't long. They would have a second marshmallow. But so many of us, when it comes to investing, don't want to wait. I have one final question for you, Bushy, which is, do you have a frugalista tip? Do you have something that you do that might be a bit quirky or unusual to save money that is a bit frugal? Yeah, well, we, my wife and I are, are real uh, advocates of the access versus ownership approach to life, I guess. And and what I mean by that is, uh, the, and the way we've interpreted that is to access lifestyle but only own assets and I, I need to define what an asset is an asset is something that grows in value it gives you a, a regular and ongoing stream of income and it's a saleable asset at the same time so if you put your own home on that on that definition it's not an asset it's actually a liability because if your own home is taking money out of your pocket not putting money into your pocket so uh, hence the reason why you know for many years Rent vesting's become trendy where you rent where you live and you invest in property assets that, that grow in value elsewhere. That that's one of the things that pretty much affects everything we do. So when we go on holidays, we we home share or we property share. So we, we had a fantastic holiday in Freysenay in Tasmania a while back, where we did a house exchange, where uh, we stayed on their two beautiful two-story property right on the beach for nothing for two weeks, and we offered up our property. You don't have to do it at the same time. We offered up our own property uh, to do the same in Adelaide, and they've never come back to our property in Adelaide, by the way, to do this. But we had a fantastic holiday for zero cost in a, in a, in a beautiful property. So that's that, that's that access thing that I'm talking about. You don't have to own it. Mm. A couple of the other things that I think are really important, uh, and I'm talking at the granular day-to-day level, every year we revisit and renegotiate our home loans, our insurances, our power, our telephones. Our, our biggest costs, our biggest living costs are in those items. And don't be scared to pick up the phone and, and ask the hard question because you will save yourself thousands of dollars a year. Home loans, for example, because uh, we've got a brokerage business, it's not difficult for us to save anywhere between $1,000 and $2,000 a month just by renegotiating home loans. Wow. Now, that's between 12 and 24 grand a year. And if you put tax on that, if you have to go out and earn the money, that you're giving yourself a 25 to 30 grand pay rise just by renegotiating your home loan. I just encourage people to pick up the phone and ask the hard question. You'll be amazed at how much you can do to put into the bottom line just by doing that because it's you know the old thing. It's not how much you earn, it's how much you spend that counts. 
So really focus on your spending. The other thing that, that we continue to do is we buy last minute and we buy secondhand. This might sound interesting, but you know some of our best holidays we've secured right on the death knell. So we had a we did a fantastic two week cruise around um, from Sydney to New Zealand, Tasmania and back. Top class suite right at the front of the boat for fifteen hundred bucks. This is music to my husband Neil's ears. He loves a good cruise, and I can see him already smiling and going, "Can't wait until this pandemic is over to so he can go cruising again." Well, yeah, I was a very reluctant cruiser, and my wife can convince me to do it. But what I hadn't recognised is that when it gets right to the death knell, before a cruise is about to, to sail, they need to fill fill the empty cabins. Yeah, and there's some great websites around that will give you access to those right before the death knell. And the other thing is that quite often they re-release stuff at midnight. So we'd often book it at between midnight and one o'clock in the morning because that's when the stuff came back onto the market and you could snap it up right at the, right at the, the death knell to get things way cheaper than what you otherwise would. Last minute is really key, and that goes with food as well. So we, we buy daily almost now because we don't, just don't want to waste it. The amount of food wastage that we used to do by you know doing a once-a-week shop and we'd throw a lot of it away because it would go off or we wouldn't use it or, or, or what have you. So we just buy what we need day to day now. And, and it's a saving tip and it's also a wastage exercise. And our best clothes are secondhand. My best jeans are jeans I still get at the Salvos. <laughs> but they are. And, and my, my wife, Sonia, has this fantastic jacket. It, it's a beautiful jacket. Uh, it's a timeless piece. It cost her $20. It's a full-length uh, leather, leather jacket. It's beautiful looking which she bought secondhand at an op shop. And a number of comments, every time she wears that jacket, someone says, oh, that is a beautiful jacket. Where did you get that? And we're smiling on the inside when she, she paid $20 to get it. I'm a big advocate of buying secondhand in, in those simple things because it's the simple day-to-day things that create the bigger things. So if we're yeah. saving day today, then we're creating capacity to invest in other things down the track. Well, that's music to my ears because in 2021, I'm launching the Joyful Fashionista, so a website for uh, selling very quality and beautiful secondhand clothes. We'll be your first customer. <laughs> Develop the prototype website and I'm developing it further. I'm just deciding on the final logo. I'll send you some copies so your wife can have a look. Please. So thank you so much for being my guest and I look forward to having you on again. I hope that's not pre- too presumptuous. I would love to. And how can people find you? There's obviously your Get Invested podcast. Where else can people find you? Yeah, so yeah, the podcast is the easy one because then you, you'll get a sense of whether you like me or hate me and because uh, you'll, you'll get to hear my droning voice uh, every week. But if you want to reach out directly, just email me at bushy at knowhow property.com.au so it's knowhowproperty.com.au if you want to find out a bit more about me bushymartin.com.au if you're interested in property in the investment side then our website knowhowproperty.com.au is a great place to start feel free to reach out just send me a personal email uh, at bushy at knowhowproperty.com.au and I'd, I'd love to have a chat Lovely. Thank you so much for sharing your know-how today. If you've enjoyed this and other podcasts, please make sure to subscribe and leave me a comment. I always love listening to comments. Thank you so much once again, Bushy. Love that, Serena. Thanks for the time. You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. Time
Where